Welcome to Ars Equi, the podcast on all things law and technology. I'm Tima. I'm Catherine. I'm Paul. And in this episode, Investigations on the Dark Web. So hello again, and thank you for joining us. On this episode of the Dark Web series, we're going to be talking a little bit about how law enforcement is able to investigate, enforce the law on the dark web, given that there's so many different challenges that law enforcement will face, like anonymity, the issue of jurisdiction, and all of these issues come into place. So we're going to take a deep dive into the techniques that law enforcement applies to overcome these issues and just see what international law says about this and how all of this works works in practice. Yes. So in the previous episodes, we discussed how um, dark web is accessible through the Tor browser and how uh, the specific encryption technologies and so on render um, all the activities anonymous. So the first question there is really to see how law enforcement agents can find illegal activities. So let's assume we are a dark web investigative team and um, we are using specific algorithms and mining techniques to scrape and index millions of web pages on the dark web. So usually on, um, on the surface web, so more traditional cybercrime activities, the goal there is to identify the individual behind illegal activities. In this case, um, law enforcement would find an individual's online alias, but then actually assessing the location or any further information to identify the individual is impossible due to the whole system of how the dark web works. So it goes without saying that conventional uh, investigative techniques don't really work. Yeah, so... This is an issue, obviously, normally you can just trace the IP address of someone and then find out uh, who used this uh, computer at a given time and then just, you know, knock on their door and, and conduct a raid. Uh, so for in order to find out who uh, these criminals are, there are certain techniques used by law enforcement uh, to kind of get through the anonymity and, and get a name, essentially. Uh, one, uh, this is actually quite simple on a technical level, uh, but hard to execute, is open source intelligence. So just taking in uh, information that is publicly available and, and kind of combining it and piece, piece by piece try to find out the identity of a certain suspect. Uh, one quite easy example for this, and I found this really funny, is uh, a drug dealer tried to tra trademark his um, username. <laughs> Uh, in the US, and this is how they found out who he was because he used his clear name for this trademark application. Uh, so uh, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> or do do that because you want to actually yeah. find criminals. Um, but there are other tools, other ways. Uh, so actually, this is uh, there is an open source community around this programming tools for these investigative techniques that are on the one hand used by the criminals themselves to make sure law enforcement can find them, but also law enforcement to find these criminals. Uh, so for example, these uh, tools try to find uh, similar things across different websites, a correlation between them, uh, same encryption key used, for example, uh, and therefore um, trying to maybe uh, extend information that they have already. Uh, but there's also other techniques, for example, um, 
law enforcement will hack equipment of the suspects and try to find out, install malware there and, and try to find out their IP um, or, or find other uh, information about them. Yeah, I mean, another interesting technique that law enforcement uses traditionally in everyday practice, but they also use on the dark web is going undercover. So essentially, law enforcement agents will go undercover onto different marketplaces and try to infiltrate the marketplace, either posing as buyers or sellers, and then try to gather as much information as they can this way. I found a really interesting example, though, that was a little bit different. So I thought it might be interesting to share is um, the Netherlands. A national high-tech crime unit, they essentially went undercover on a popular dark net marketplace called Hansa. And what was interesting is originally they had found, gathered information and were able to identify the two guys who were operating the marketplace. And these guys were in Germany. So they reached out to German law enforcement agencies and basically said, hey, we found these guys, you know, can we collaborate in some way? And to their luck, the German agencies were already investigating these two guys for a separate crime that had nothing to do with the dark web. So they were like, okay, we will um, arrest these guys. And then they were able to turn over the, the essential control of this marketplace to the hands of the Dutch agencies. So the Dutch agencies were able to essentially infiltrate and become administrators of this marketplace. And they were able to interact directly with buyers and sellers. They were able to alter the code and grab information on different users. And they were even able to trick certain users into opening a certain file on their computers that exposed their locations and their IP addresses. So in this way, that's how they were able to infiltrate that marketplace and go undercover. I think that's really interesting, even just the seizing of the server and getting the data really helps them because there might be a list of addresses, for example, that uh, people ordered from, and then you can just go there, uh, look at who ordered drugs essentially and finding the buyers like this. But keeping the website operational obviously also leads to a moral dilemma essentially because you're allowing, for example, the drug trade to continue. And this sometimes even goes further because uh, these platforms started essentially proving that they are still live by, um, in, in one case, it was posting child pornography uh, every month and keep posting it so as a sign, hey, we're not compromised. Yeah. So law enforcement now was faced with the dilemma, do they want to essentially blow their cover by stop posting um, child pornography or do they keep doing it uh, just to, to catch more people, mm -hmm. essentially? And this was in, in Queensland, in Australia, and they have the right to do this. Uh, so they did. They just keep, kept posting child pornography uh, for 11 months uh, wow. and, and kept this website operational uh, in order to find the administrators and to find the users. Yeah, it definitely brings up a moral dilemma on the one hand, you know, finding as many criminals as possible and essentially probably cleaning up the dark web, as they would say. But it also creates a situation that once that marketplace goes down, instantly another one springs up. So is it even worth the exchange that they have to do, um, compromising all of these things like posting child pornography and so on, knowing very clearly that as soon as this marketplace is taken down, instantly another one comes up. Also, sorry, I just thought of something a bit funny in this. Like, I wonder how many times law enforcement agencies are sort of investigating each other. <laughs> True, actually, so, not I knowing. Mean, you know, acting upon incidental findings mm. and just like, as they look, 
like criminals and they can't really know. So here, I suppose, cooperation and transparency on what type of investigative techniques uh, are being used is really important. Um, yeah, I think from what you said, uh, it really shows how these techniques have to sort of work together in a sort of puzzle and put together the patterns of activities um, on the dark web. And I also have an interesting story, I think, about one technique that used um, also a sort of mix of different techniques. So this was in Australia together with the FBI. And it's um, what they did is that they used an encrypted app um, that was then used by criminals to communicate with each other. And um, what they could do, the authorities could actually read up to 25 million messages in real time. And this obviously was a massive amount of evidence of information and they uncovered like a lot of like even murder plots and 3,000 kilograms of drugs and so on. Um, and just in one night, they had 300 search warrants across Australia, Europe and the US mm -hmm. at the same time. Um, so what is interesting here is that this was a massive sort of international effort to bring down uh, a number of platforms and criminal activities. And according um, to the police, um, this whole plan to use an encrypted app was actually hatched overseas over a few beers with <laughs> FBI agents back in 2018. So this is like three years. So this story is from June uh, 2021. Mm. So it's very fresh. And I think this is an interesting starting point to really discuss how international cooperation can work given the nature and the sort of um, inevitably complicated uh, char characteristics of digital evidence in general, but especially on the dark web. Yeah, I mean, international cooperation is obviously something that cannot be escaped because of the multi-jurisdictional nature of cybercrime. So um, security agencies all over the world definitely have to work together. They have to collaborate, share information, share sources in order for them to be able to have any successful investigation. So what are some of the legal frameworks that kind of establish this cooperation between different um, investigating bodies all over the world? So I think in general, we can sort of see formal and informal mechanisms. So um, I, I guess starting from formal ones, the basic idea is that you have some form of agreement, either bilateral between two countries or like, you know, a bigger group of countries through a convention and so on. So if you look at Europe, there are a number of mechanisms on exchanging um, investigative information or evidence. So one is the European Investigative Order Directive that sets out a framework. Um, but you also have mutual legal assistance treaties between just two countries or, I don't know, the EU and a group of countries and so on. Yeah. Um, so I think the general framework is also the Cybercrime Convention. Yeah. So this is the Budapest Convention. Yeah. Um, but there are some standards that need to be met there. And there is obviously um, an issue with the procedure being very time consuming um, and, you know, having to go through a very sort of often inefficient administrative process. So 
there is obviously a lot of debate whether these formal mechanisms are even useful. Yeah. I mean, an example of perhaps where the formal mechanisms may be working is if we look at the African perspective. So based on this Budapest Convention on Cybercrimes, the African Union has been able to enter into a collaborative partnership with Interpol, and they've established something that they're calling AFRIPOL. And essentially, it's um, Interpol has been able to set up special representative offices, and they've worked together with the African Union on the African continent to really go into dark web issues that are quite unique to Africa. For example, the trade of wildlife, the trade the trade of rhino horns and things like that. And to investigate these issues and to offer assistance to African countries that may not have the infrastructure in place to really be able to tackle these type of crimes. So I think from from the African perspective, the um, formal kind of conventions are working quite well because it's allowing us to establish these relationships and allowing us to work with more experienced um, security agencies and to assist countries that may not be able to do it on their own. Yeah, but these forms of cooperation also raise some questions. So going back to the example I had before with the regular posting of child pornography, this was only possible because this is legal in uh, Australia, but this wasn't legal in the US and the US was initially uh, the one that brought up the case and then more or less asked the Australians to uh, do the investigation for them to post the content which they wouldn't be allowed to do. So they kind of used these different international rules for their advantage so that investigations that wouldn't have been possible in the US were conducted by another agency. Right. So dual criminality is definitely like a, a, a big, not hurdle, I would say, but it's an important aspect to meet. And I suppose also uh, when you have like, uh, for example, you mentioned African countries, the risk there is that the, the countries with, let's say, the technology or the infrastructure to actually investigate might tend to impose their standards on the investigation mm. or like exploit the fact that some activities might not even be illegal in Africa and just use the nodes based there. So, yeah, I think that definitely becomes problematic. It also is a topic of conversation when the people who are selling are on the African continent and then the buyers are in Europe because that's often the case what happens. So then there's a bit of an exchange of information where we in, Interpol helps the African countries to prosecute the sellers and then they also have all of this information perhaps on the buyers in Europe and then what happens with that information is there an evidential issue on how the data was collected and stuff like that? So I think law of evidence becomes a problem here, especially in the case that Paul was talking about, because the collecting evidence in itself has to be lawful in order for that evidence to be admissible in court. So it becomes difficult when law enforcement agencies go to other countries where certain practices might be lawful, but they might not be lawful in the original country. Yeah, definitely. And I think in general, what is also clear is that the sort of more formal mechanisms have some strong shortcomings. And uh, with the example I had earlier about this encrypted app um, based in Australia that, you know, had an impact globally, it was really based on some beers, you know, between FBI agents and the Australian police. So informal mechanisms still seem to be um, the most used, let's say, way to actually um, set up an investigation and the biggest operations. So these are sort of investigator to investigator assistance um, based on, you know, some form of trust that is built over just like 
conferences, courtesy visits, um, and also cooperation in previous joint investigations. And I think if you go through uh, different examples of famous uh, investigations in the last few years, it's often, you know, the same two countries collaborating, such as, for example, the Dutch police and the FBI, because clearly once you build up that work relationship of trust and knowing that, um, you know, certain rules are followed, it's easier to work together. At the same time, this also raises a bunch of legal questions, obviously, because there are these formal mechanisms and now you're just going around them essentially and just, yeah. you know, having a couple of beers and planning your, your criminal investigation all of a sudden. But maybe this is also an issue in general of international law because, you know, if international law is very vulnerable and weak in its tools, mm -hmm. then, of course, as long as the two countries involved are, you know, agreeing and yeah. they're working together nicely... I don't think there would be an issue from a jurisdictional point of view because there is consent to sort of, you know, step into each other's territory a bit. Yeah. Or at and least collaborate. Yeah. And informal mechanisms definitely reduce the bureaucratic load and the red tape that would often face law enforcement agencies to do what they need to do. But like Paul said, also raising a lot of legal questions about why are you avoiding red tape? Is it to evade some sort of requirements that you have to adhere to or just to make the investigation run more smoothly. Yeah, and then obviously also raises uh, domestic questions so of the national law, uh, whether this evidence is admissible and so on. Yeah. So maybe one effort to sort of, um, you know, overcome this issue of formal informal mechanisms is what is happening in Europe with Europol, where, you know, Europol is there, an EU agency trying to sort of help different countries to collaborate and work together. So Europol is there to support without having its own, of course, competence in investigating. So they have their own agents, but they're still always working with national agents. Mm. So this could be like a possibility of how, and it's similar, I suppose, to how Interpol works. Yes. Um, so if this is effective in sort of helping different countries work together, then this could be a way to sort of render those informal mechanisms more legally compliant. Yeah, this is true. I mean, like I said before, the African example with Interpol is very indicative of this because there's been operations that have gone on between countries like Nigeria and Ghana that have been facilitated through this AFRIPOL, Interpol, African Union um, collaboration that perhaps might not have happened without this sort of formal um established relationship between all of these international bodies working together. Yes, definitely. Yeah, so that already brings us to the end of the episode. Uh, thank you very much for listening. This is also the end of the series. We will have quite interesting content coming up for you in two weeks, so stay tuned. Uh, thank you for listening and goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>